So we've been in, at this for three weeks now. I'm going to give us a really quick recap, and I'm hoping that I might be able to get some kids to help me recap maybe what's happened here. <clears throat> the first thing that happens in the truest story of the world, according to the Bible, does any kid know what happens first? The very beginning of the Bible. Yeah. God made the world. Creation is the first thing. What's the second thing that we talked about? After God made a good world, what happened? Any kids know? Kids, you don't want this to have to go to the grown-ups. I know you know. Adam and Eve, yeah, they sinned. And so the second chapter is the fall. And then last week we started the third chapter of the truest story, which is the promise, promise of God. So in chapter one, just real quick recap, Ben taught us about God's creation. Before any life existed on the earth, God was here. And God initiated this world in its purpose through his creativity. <clears throat> he made us, he made mankind as the pinnacle of his creation, and unlike any other aspect of the creation, we were created in God's own image, and we were designed to reflect his goodness, um, and we were designed to cultivate creation under his good authority. And God created this perfect place that was called Eden. It was a perfect garden where he dwelled with Adam and Eve in this thing called Shalom, which is a state of perfect peace and goodness, and it was really good, but it didn't last long. Because then the fall happened. And Brad walked us through this um, a couple weeks ago. At this point in the story, another character shows up, and it's a serpent. And we find out that this serpent, this snake, turns out to be God's enemy. It turns out to be Satan. <clears throat> and he tempts Adam and Eve. Um, he, convinces, he convinces Adam and Eve to doubt that God loves them. He tempts Adam and Eve to forget uh, God's word and to disobey the one command that God gave them. All right, kids, another question. What's the one command that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden? To not what? Yeah. That's right. He told them, I don't want you to eat from the tree or from the fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that Adam and Eve would die if they ate from this, the fruit from this tree. But the serpent said, you won't die. In fact, you will become like God. And Adam and Eve gave in to this temptation. They were attracted to this lie. They didn't know it was a lie, maybe. <clears throat> but by doing so, their rejection of God's word led them to feel ashamed. And they were aware for the first time that they were naked. So they hid from God and they tried to cover their nakedness. But God didn't leave them there. God pursued them. God found them. And he confronted them for what they did, and asked them what they had done. <clears throat> and then he told them that their sinful rebellion would have significant consequences for them and for God's creation. So as a consequence of that, Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden where they'd lived with, uh, with God in his presence for their entire life. And outside of the garden, all their work, all their relationships, childbirth, all of it would now be hard and it would all be broken. Creation would be fractured because of this sin. And God said that they would, in fact, die. One day that they would return to the dust from which they were made. <clears throat> but God also said that he would send someone to crush the head of the snake. <clears throat> and before God sent Adam and Eve away, he killed some animals and he covered up Adam and Eve's nakedness so that they could go out into the world. <clears throat> and God, in his kindness, 
he didn't abandon his creation, even though uh, he could have right now. Um, instead, he initiates a plan of restoration. And his plan, his plan includes working through a single family to bless the entire world. So last week, Kendrick picked up the next chapter in the story, and this chapter of the truest story is called Promise. And God promises to make, um, call one man and make a great nation out of that man's family. Kids, can anyone remember who God called and promised that he would make a great nation of him? Abraham. Abraham. Ty, good job, great job. All right. Abraham, God called Abraham. And he made a, pr- a blessing, or he made a promise to, to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. <clears throat> and what was the one thing that made this really hard to believe about Abraham? You guys remember, kids? Yeah? He was really old. He was super old. How many old people do you know that have lots of kids? Not many, right? Yeah, sure. He had no kids, right? No kids, so it became hard to believe this promise. But you want to know what? God does keep his promise, doesn't he? And he promises to provide land for Abraham's descendants to dwell in. And he promises to bless them greatly so that these people, Abraham's children, could be a blessing to the world. That's God's restoration plan. And God did what he promised. And then uh, later on in the story, through someone named Moses, God rescued the Israelites, uh, God's people from slavery in Egypt. Then he gave them his law uh, to help them understand how to live rightly in this world and how to begin to reorder creation back to uh, the way that God wanted it to be. And then through Joshua, God gives the people their own land to dwell. And then Kendrick walked through one more thing last week. God makes one more important promise, and this time he makes it to someone named King David. He promises David, who was a good king, who uh, loved the Lord, He promised David that his son would rule as king forever. So that's where we left the story last week, and that's where we're going to pick up uh, today with these promises as a part of God's plan for restoring his creation. So um, let's pray, and I'll jump into the rest of the story. Father, we thank you for this time, God. We thank you for your word that you've given us, God. We thank you, um, God, that we can be shaped by your word and your story instead of our own. God, we thank you that there is such good news uh, in this story. God, we thank you for the hero that's at the center of this story, Jesus. Um, We pray, God, that you'd be glorified as we look to your word, God, as we try and understand um, how you're restoring and reworking and reordering your creation through Jesus, God. So speak to us, move in our hearts, um, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So uh, we are going to be in uh, the book of Jeremiah a little bit today, so it should be on your phones, but if you want to open up uh, scripture, we'll be in Jeremiah uh, 31. And the truest story picks up today with part two of promise, and we're going to talk, we're going to start talking about Solomon. Does anyone know who Solomon is? Kids, this is more quiz time. James, do you know who Solomon is? David's son, that's right. And God had made a promise to David's son, uh, about David's son. And so Solomon starts his rule really good. He starts it strong. And God appears to Solomon in a dream. And in this dream, he asks Solomon what he wants. He says, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon does this really great thing. He asks for wisdom. He asks that he would be wise to be able to lead God's people well. 
And God was really pleased by that answer. And so he says, I'm going to give you wisdom, Solomon, but I'm also going to give you wealth and glory beyond any other king alive in the world at this time, which is a big deal. And then also uh, Solomon got to build the temple. So David wanted to build a temple. A temple is a, a dwelling place where God would dwell with his people, where the people could come and worship the Lord. And David wanted to build that for God, but God said, now you're a a man of war. You've been in too many battles. I'm going to leave that to your son. And so Solomon gets this great privilege of overseeing the building of this temple. And whenever this big, magnificent temple uh, that celebrates God and his presence in the middle of his people, when they dedicate it and complete this structure, um, something amazing happens. Uh, The scripture says that his thick cloud moves in to the temple. And this thick cloud is the glorious, visible presence of God, and it fills the temple, just like the, the visible presence of God was with the people in the Exodus story. And Solomon acknowledges that in that moment, God was fulfilling this ancient promise to Israel to dwell with them, to be in their midst. And so to these people, to the Israelites, it must have seemed they remembered the stories about Eden, and they remembered the stories about God's shalom, his good presence and creation and good order, and so they must have felt that a bit of that was being reclaimed and reestablished in this moment. And there were other really cool things that happened uh, with Solomon. Uh, All these influential world leaders from other parts of the world, uh, they started to come and visit, and uh, one of them was the Queen of Sheba, and so she was very well known, very wealthy. She came to visit and check out Israel because she heard such great things about this nation of Israel and its leader, Solomon. And when she sees this temple, when she sees the prosperity of the kingdom, she sees the, and hears the wisdom from Solomon as their leader, she's moved to praise the Lord. And, and this is kind of incredible to think about this person coming from the other part of the world who was not an Israelite, who was not formed and shaped by God's law, being moved to worship God based on what God was doing through his people, the Israelites. <clears throat> and this is crazy because, remember, Just a few generations ago, a few hundred years ago, Israel was a nation of slaves. They lived in Egypt. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. And then after God freed them from that, they were just desert wanderers, you know? So really simple, humble beginnings. And now they become this incredibly wealthy and influential nation. And this is God's doing. And the other thing that's really uh, cool about this is that if you look at the map of where Israel is at, God has strategically placed this tiny little nation of Israel that's having all this influence right in the middle of like where Eastern and Western culture civilizations are colliding, you know, right here in the middle of the world. So we start to see how God's plan to bless all of creation through Israel may be starting to take shape. But unfortunately, uh, we're not quite there in the story yet. That's not the case yet. Um, For those of you who have read the story about uh, Solomon, Um, And we're not going to have time to go through the entire story. But if you read it, you start to kind of pick up on things that you're like, this doesn't quite sound right. Something seems off here. The first thing that Solomon does is he allows the worship of God, of Israel's God, at the high places. So hills and mountaintops, uh, instead of just at the temple, where there were priests that were in charge of the, the way of worship and ordering worship and the sacrificial system and things like that, the, the way that God told them to worship. So this may not seem like that big of a deal, but the high places were also where the Canaanites, the people who lived in the land before Israelites, it was a place where they worshiped their gods, where they worshiped Baal. 
And so the fact that uh, Solomon was allowing people to go up to the high places to worship instead of just worshiping in the temple, it just opened the door to worshiping other gods, to worshiping Baal and the idols that the Canaanites had um, in the land. The second thing that you notice, this seems a bit off, is Solomon has these really ambitious building plans. And the temple is a part of that. God's temple is a part of that. But also uh, his palace and these other buildings and structures. And one of the things that you pick up on in the story is that Solomon begins to use forced labor um, to fulfill his ambitious plans. So this should remind us a little bit of a little bit further back in the story in Israel's time when they were in Egypt and they were building things for Pharaoh and they were forced laborers and they were slaves. Um, And this forced labor starts to begin to show back up in God's uh, kingdom in the promised land. And it begins to actually plant seeds of the the Israelites being alienated against uh, their king. And it starts to plant seeds for division. And then the third thing that happens, and you say, this just doesn't sound right, is Solomon begins to take foreign wives. He takes hundreds of wives. And uh, this is especially forbidden, just taking foreign wives, but so many of them especially. And eventually... Solomon begins to actually worship uh, his wives' gods alongside uh, Israel's God, Yahweh. And as the king goes, as the king leads his people, so the people go. And so idolatry and worshiping other gods enters into God's kingdom, enters into God's people again. So God becomes angry with Solomon. Uh, He becomes angry with the people's idolatry and the fact that they've broken the covenant repeatedly um, refuse to be committed to God and God only, and worship him alone. That's what his law taught them. So God tells Solomon that he will tear, a, that he will tell, tear part of the kingdom from his heirs as a consequence uh, for this idolatry and this sin. And that's what happens. Whenever Solomon dies, the tribes in the north part of the kingdom they come down, and they talk to Solomon's son. And Solomon's son, his name is Rehoboam. And these people come to him, and they say, your dad, Solomon, was a hard taskmaster, which sounds a little bit like Pharaoh. And they asked Rehoboam, we want you to lighten the burden of forced labor on us. It's just too much. And Rehoboam responds like Pharaoh did back in Exodus. He says, how dare you ask me to make things easier on you? I'm going to make things even harder on you. So the tribes in the north, because of this, they break off and they form their own kingdom, which is referred to as Israel. And then they raise up their own king. His name's Jeroboam. Jeroboam doesn't want his people to go down to Jerusalem, to the temple. Remember, that's where God's people worship. He's worried if they go down there that they're just going to submit back to Jerusalem and Jeroboam. So he has to come up with a plan for how does he keep his people in his kingdom. So this is what he does. He has a pair of golden calves created for them to worship. Kids, can you think of any other place in God's story, the truest story, where golden calves show up? Anyone? Kids? No? Adults? All right, you can tag in. Yeah, it's the same thing. They make more golden calves, and they place them up there, and the kingdom's up there, and he says... Uh, Jeroboam says, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, Israel. Worship here. 
So that is an ominous start to the beginning of their kingdom, and it does not set things up well for the kingdom of Israel. In fact, every single one of the kings in Israel, in the northern kingdom, uh, they lead the people in idolatry. Not one of them is good. Not one of them leads them towards uh, Yahweh, towards the God of Israel. In fact, they lead them in the exact opposite direction of their covenant purpose as God's people and towards idolatry. And they look just like the nations surrounding them. Instead of looking like a set-apart people, instead of looking distinct, as opposed to looking like God's people with a covenant purpose on earth. So we had uh, passed around a passage in the book of 2 Kings that really gave a good summary of just what happened and how did we get here. And it says, even though God gave them a law, even though God sent prophets to tell them to obey the law, and even though God sent prophets that said, You're gonna end, this is going to end badly for you, the people kept worshiping idols. And this passage says that it even got to the point that they started to sacrifice their children to these false idols. Just wickedness was happening in God's people. And then there's the southern kingdom. Remember them? They're called Judah. Um, there's two tribes left in the south, Judah. And we get the idea of their spiritual health uh, from their leaders. Um, it's a little bit better, but it's not good. So they have a handful of, of good godly kings uh, like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Um, these kings were kings who removed idols, and they placed their trust in the Lord, and they led people back towards God. But for the most part, Judah begins to look more and more like the surrounding nations, just like Israel did. And they look less and less like the people of God. So God has to do something about it. He's not going to let his restoration plan fail, and it's not going to happen with idolatry happening through his people. And so this brings us to a big chunk of the Old Testament. It's a big chunk of the Bible that's referred to as the prophets. And as the position of the king becomes more important and more central to the life of Israel, God raises up this other group of people called prophets, uh, as a counterbalance to God's, uh, excuse me, to the king's power. Because kings in Israel were different than kings. We're supposed to be different from kings all around the rest of the world. They weren't sovereign authorities. They weren't supposed to elevate themselves to God-like authorities. They were meant to be leaders under God's authority and under God's law. They were meant to shepherd God's people. They were meant to bring about God's blessing through his people. But they weren't doing this. So God sends prophets like Elijah and Elisha, and they begin to show up around this time, and they begin to confront the kings that were doing these wicked things and leading their people in idolatry. And these prophets share rebukes, and they share warnings, and they say, God's judgment is coming. You need to repent of this idolatry, or it's going to get really bad. God is going to send people to destroy you. And there's arguably no better picture of this struggle than the story of Elijah and King Ahab, uh, who was the king in Israel, the northern kingdom. And this story takes place in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 18. And Elijah brings this full-on confrontation uh, with Israel on Mount Carmel. And he tells Israel that they must choose who they're going to worship and who they're going to trust. He gives them two options. The Canaanite god of Baal, which is who they were worshiping, Or they could come back and they could worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. But he says, you can't worship both. You must choose who you belong to. 
And so he establishes this competition of sorts. And it's decided that what's going to happen is that the true God will send fire down from the sky to consume a sacrifice on an altar, which sounds pretty crazy, right? So the prophets of Baal, they go first, and they prepare an altar, and they, they prepare a sacrifice, and they put it on the altar, and they spend all day crying out to their God, asking their God to send down fire from the sky. Baal, why won't you listen to us? Send fire down from the sky. Prove that you are real. All day long they do this. Nothing happens. So Elijah, it's his turn. And he calls out and he asks, he prepares the altar, he puts a sacrifice on top of it, and then he asks people to actually pour buckets of water on top of this altar to make it soaking wet. Who's ever tried to start a campfire with wet wood? Has anyone ever done that? Kids? You guys ever tried to start a fire, help your uh, parents start a fire with wet campfire wood? Dads, have you guys ever ended up taking your kids camping when it is raining outside and you can't start a fire? Not easy. James? Yeah. How does it work? Not great. It doesn't work well. (laughs) Elijah does this because he wants to prove how powerful God is, and he's confident in God's ability to show up and demonstrate his power. And so after they do this, Elijah prays to God, and he asks God to display his power, to send down fire from heaven, and God does. And fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the entire sacrifice, the entire altar, everything around it. And the people of God, the Israelites, they see this, and they are moved to worship. They fall on their faces in fear. They worship God, and they recognize that God is, that the Lord uh, is the true God, not Baal. But even with a miraculous sign like this one and others that happen throughout Israel's history, Israel continues to go back and worship these false gods, and their kings continue to lead them towards this idolatry. So God's patience comes to an end with them eventually. And he brings the judgment that he's been talking about coming. He's warned them repeatedly about it over and over again. And so what happens is first, Israel, who's the northern kingdom, they're conquered by the Assyrian Empire. This empire comes down and destroys their capital. It takes their people off into exile. And what exile is, is it's when people are removed from their homeland and they're taken back to the enemy's homeland forced to live there among the people. Maybe they live as slaves in different, different uh, degrees, but it's not good. They're no longer in their home. And then after Israel is conquered, about 100 years later, the other kingdom, the southern kingdom, called Judah, is conquered by the next regional superpower. They're the Babylonians, the next big superpower. Many of their people were taken off into Babylon as exiles as well. So let's pause in the story, because this is bad. This is not good. How did we get here? Last week we learned that God chose a specific man. He he chose Abraham, which he blessed. He blessed Abraham, and he turned him into a nation called Israel. And God's purpose with this nation was for them to embody God's true purposes for mankind, to to actually start to live what it looks like or what what we're supposed to be doing as humans. And he said that he would bless them so that they could be a blessing to the rest of creation and help this re- be a part of this restoration project that God had initiated. And it seems that we get so close with David and so close with Solomon, but then this story turns into a disaster. <clears throat> but all along the way, all through Scripture, God has been faithful to keep all of his promises, but Israel has been unfaithful and repeatedly 
they have broken their side of the commitment, their side of the come up uh, of the uh, uh, covenant. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we can take from this chunk of the story that we're covering today. But I think the most important thing for us to understand is that worship of idols brings destruction. And it, because it brings separation from God, and separation from God brings death. So rather than worshiping the creator, the God who miraculously delivered the Israelites from Egypt, the one who brought them to the promised land, the Israelites chose to worship the gods of the surrounding cultures of the Canaanite culture. And just like Adam and Eve's sin that led them to being sent out of the garden, outside of God's presence in the garden, the Israelites' sin, it leads them to being sent out of the promised land. They're exiled out of God's presence and out to a foreign land. And I think it's easy for us to, um, you know, judge the Canaanites um, since we're not really tempted uh, in our modern day to worship Baal or pagan gods. You know, it's not that big of a temptation for us. <clears throat> we're civilized. We're modern Christians, you know, or uh, those things. But I, I want us to kind of just take a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites for a moment. When the Israelites came to the promised land for the first time, they all of a sudden became farmers. Never, never really been farmers before. You know, they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, they got, you know, food from that ecosystem and that e economy. Um, they go out into the desert. God provides manna from heaven for them, and he provides food for them. And then they show up in Canaan, and they've inherited all these farms. And all of a sudden, they're an agrarian society. They're farming. <clears throat> they're dependent on the rain. They're dependent on a good crop, you know, to come out to feed them, or else they're going to starve, you know? And Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. So if you wanted a good harvest, the Canaanites believed that you had to give your devotion and worship to Baal, that you had to make sacrifices to him. In exchange, you would receive abundance, a great crop. You'd have everything you needed. That was the center of kind of their culture, and so their entire lives were wrapped around that idolatry and that hope in Baal. And it's not wrong, you know, for the Israelites who would to want a good harvest. It's not wrong for them to want, wrong for them to want you know, to produce good crops, to feed their families and things like that. But the thing is, is that God said that he would provide for them. God was the one who said that they should trust him. He would take care of all those needs for them. He's the one who created all those crops. He's the one who created that land, who created all that abundance. He could provide for his children who he loved. So Israelite, the Israelites' desire wasn't wrong, but we have to pay attention to where we go to fulfill those desires. And then we also do need to test our hearts to understand if the desires that we have in our heart are really good things, you know? I think what's happening behind the scenes with the Israelites here and what I want us to kind of take from this is it's the same story that's happening uh, that happened in the Garden of Eden. The serpent, who is God's enemy, he's showing up, I believe, and he's speaking lies to lead the people away from their created purpose. As humans, you and I, we were all created to worship God. We were created to enjoy him forever, to enjoy his presence forever. <clears throat> so as humans, whenever we give our full devotion to anything else, put our hope in anything else, we become less human because that's not what we were created for. That's not what we're made for. <clears throat> so idolatry isn't just a problem for the ancient Israelites. It's not a, a, it's not a them problem. It's an us problem. It's a human problem. 
Tim Keller defines idols this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. So idolatry is very much alive today. And the tricky thing is is that I think we can, just like the Israelites, we can take good things that God has given us and we can turn them into idols in our lives. We can give them power and authority over us. So here, as we are considering, like, what does it look like in the modern world to, to be drawn to and potentially worship idols? Here are a few questions that I think we can ask ourselves to, like, check our hearts and determine if there are idols that we're seeking in our own lives. Where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Where do I get my joy in life? What's always on my mind? What do I spend my time thinking about? And have these things become the most important thing to be, to me? <clears throat> or maybe the question is, what do you want in life? And what are you willing to do to get that thing? Perhaps for you, that thing is a comfortable life. So your savior becomes your savings account. Perhaps that thing for you is being successful. So you give your primary devotion to your career. Perhaps it's your kids, so you're willing to order your entire life around just making them happy. Perhaps you want a better society, so you give your highest allegiance to a political party that you think is the best way to resolve and fix everything. Maybe your desire is to constantly be entertained or distracted, so you give your time to your phone or to Netflix or whatever, whatever it takes to avoid your thoughts, to be present. Perhaps Solomon really enjoyed the glory that he received from his peers, Maybe he liked the way that felt, so he needed to create an ambitious building project off the backs of his people to keep up. I don't know, maybe. Perhaps Solomon really wanted his hundreds of wives just to be happy. So if worshiping their gods alongside his god, Yahweh, would do the trick, then why not? What's the big deal? The thing about idols is that, like God, they offer us promises. But unlike God, they're false promises. They always let us down. They always lead to separation from God, and they always lead to death. So, back to Israel and Judah and the story. It would seem that they have really messed up this plan for restoration. They've been unfaithful. They're now in exile. They're slaves again, far away from the promised land. But even though Israel has been unfaithful, God keeps the promises that he made to them, the promises that he made to Abraham to make them a great, plentiful nation, to bless uh, them and then bless other people. And God keeps his promise that he made to David. Maybe you identify with the Israelites a bit. Maybe you feel like you're held captive by some thought or some sin. Maybe you feel far away from God, separate from him. There's good news in this for us. Because God also shows us that he's faithful to pursue his people because of his love for them, not based on their works or earning his favor or love. Rather than using this exile, this separation to destroy and wipe out his people, God uses exile to discipline them, to correct his people like a father corrects his children. He wants to make them dependent on him once again, to make them once again, to become the center of their lives and their true love. 
That's what he wants. That's his desire for his people, and that's what we're made for. So as God sent prophets to warn Israel about their destruction due to idolatry, God again sends prophets. And this time he's speaking to his people with new promises for restoration and a reminder that he's not done with them yet. Jeremiah is one of those prophets that, God's, uh, that brought God's words of hope to the people in exile. And so that's, I, you know, forever ago, I asked you to open up to Jeremiah 31. We're going to look at it now. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse uh, 31. Um, as we read this passage, as God is offering words of hope to his people who are in exile, separated uh, uh, from their land, I don't want us to just read these words as distant history. I want us to take them also as a message for us today, you know, uh, that we would get something from them today, something about the heart of God from them today. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, prophet Jeremiah prophesies, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So see, God here is acknowledging that Israel has not held up their side of the covenant. They are lawbreakers and idolaters. They've been like an unfaithful spouse, chasing after other lovers, even though God has been faithful to them. But God makes a covenant here, a promise to them, that he's going to recreate them into a new type of people, a people with God's law and his way of right living written directly on their hearts. And in order to do so, he will make a way to deal with and forgive their sin. He has to take care of that. He has to address it and deal with it. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a just God. And he's going to restore them to their mission of being a blessing to the world. And God also begins to tell his people how he's going to do this. And it goes back to that promise that God made to David uh, last week that we talked about. And the promise that he made to David was that God would raise up one of David's sons to establish a never-ending kingdom. And prophets like Isaiah continue to talk about and foretell that this king is coming. They promise that this king is coming. Isaiah refers to this coming king as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That was David's father. So a son of David as someone who is going to bring justice and righteousness. And Isaiah also talks about this coming king as someone who would be a suffering servant and as a light to the nations. So even though Israel has been unfaithful, God continues to remain faithful to his people, and his plan for restoring creation is still on track. So that's good news. So Israel is in exile. Judah's in exile. They're separated from the land. After a few generations in exile, the Israelites are now under a new power. It's the Persians, the Persian Empire. This is the, the new superpower in the world. They've defeated the Babylonians. And God actually does something extraordinary here. He moves in this pagan king who doesn't, who doesn't know him. 
His name's Cyrus, this king. And he moves in his heart to allow the Israelites to return to their land. And so that's what, ha- what happens. The king Cyrus allows the Israelites to begin to go back to their land. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, these are books about the Israelites. Not all of them. They're still scattered everywhere, but some of them begin to come back, come back to the land, the promised land that God had given them and set aside for them. And they begin to rebuild what was destroyed. They start with the altar, and then they build that, the temple around it, and then they start building the city wall so that they can start living their identity as God's people again, start to practice the sacrificial system, begin to worship God in the temple again. But even as they rebuild, they're in this humble and vulnerable state as a people compared to the glory and the influence and the wealth that they had and that they had achieved during Solomon's time. They're they're at this low, still low spot. Even though they've been physically restored to their land, they're still governed politically uh, by someone else, by other nations. They're oppressed religiously by other nations by the leading powers of the day. So after the Persians, so King Cyrus and his, his empire, after them it's the Greek empire that takes over. Another strong power comes over and oppresses and politically governs uh, the Israelites. Finally, the Roman empire shows up and they do the same thing. So God's people wait. And they wait and they wait and they wait for this expected and coming king that Isaiah talked about, that Jeremiah talked about, that God promised through his prophets the one that uh, they referred to as the Messiah, the one who would bring justice, the one who would finally make things right again. That's what they're waiting for. And that's where we're going to stop today in this storyline of the truest story. Ben's going to pick up for us next week. We're going to see what happens next as we anticipate this king, this Messiah that the whole world has been waiting for to fix and restore things. And we're going to take communion here in a minute, so if you don't have communion, uh, it's in the back, but uh, grab it. Um, but before we take communion, I want us to stop and I want us to see, I want us to consider how we see ourselves in this story. The thing is, is that like Adam and Eve, we all have our own encounters with the serpent, with God's enemy, way back at the beginning of the Bible. You've likely not had, we, uh, we're hiking this, this week in Colorado, actually in Paladuro, snake just like whipped out uh, on the trail, scared us to death. Um, I would imagine that a talking snake would have a significant impact on me as well. You've probably not had a physical talking snake tempt you. <clears throat> I have not. But no doubt God's enemy would love nothing more than for you to abandon your created purpose as a worshiper of the one true God, and your role as an image bearer who is meant to cultivate God's kingdom. The enemy would love for you to abandon that, to walk away from that, to find anything to give your life to except for that. And here's how the serpent works. Listen up. Kids, listen up. Here's how the serpent works. He finds what you want most in your heart, and he offers you a path to get that thing apart from God. It requires you disbelieving God's promises, and instead trusting the serpent's false promises. But his promises don't seem false. They seem attractive because the serpent is crafty. God's enemy is crafty, and our hearts are bent inward because of the fall, because of sin in our lives. Our tendency is to 
to, to want to believe those lives, to want to get what we want with our own power. And here's the thing, is idolatry may seem foreign to us, but anyone who has sinned, which is all of us in this room, all of humanity has sinned. At the heart of our sin is idolatry. You've disbelieved God, and you've disbelieved his promises, and you've put your hope, and you put your value in something else to give you that. And that other thing is a false God, and that is idolatry. And it leads to exile, just like Adam and Eve, just like God's covenant people. It leads to separation from God. And separation from God, because God is the source of life, leads to death. It all falls apart away from God. But here's the good news. Even though we're all sinners, even though we're all in the camp with Israel, we're all idolaters, God is a promise keeper. After the fall of man, God made a promise. He promised that he would send someone to crush the head of that serpent, God's enemy. He promised that he would deal with our sin as well. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness and he is tempted by the devil. So this should remind us of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent showing up. In fact, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the, the, the tempter, the devil, is another serpent. And the devil tempts Jesus, and he knows what Jesus wants. He knows that Jesus wants to reclaim his creation. He knows he wants to, crea- uh, he wants to reclaim and restore man. And so the devil takes Jesus up to the very top of a mountain where he can see all sorts of kingdoms. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And God's enemy says this. He says, I will give it all to you. All you have to do to get all of these kingdoms back is kneel down and worship me. Think about it for a second. Satan was offering Jesus a way to accomplish his mission, the thing that he wanted that didn't require the cross. It was a different path. You can still get this. It doesn't have to go through the cross. I'll give it to you. Just kneel down and worship me. It must have sounded easier. We know Jesus wanted to have that cup removed from him. He asked the Father later in the Gospels, can you remove this cup from me if there's any other way? But there wasn't. There wasn't. But Satan tried to tell him, there's another way. There's another way. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything you came here to get. But Jesus is faithful to God where we have been unfaithful. He has been faithful. He says, get out of here, Satan. But the scripture says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Instead of believing the serpent's lies, he believes God's word, and he repeats God's word back to the enemy. Even though you and I have been unfaithful, even though Israel was unfaithful, Jesus was faithful in our place. Jesus was a better Adam. Jesus has been a better Israel. But our sin and idolatry, it also leads to exile and death. God has to deal with that. He has to deal with that mess or else it will continue to go throughout creation and continue to destroy everything. So Jesus is sent to die in our place. And he was crucified on a cross. And as he hung there up on a cross, Matthew chapter 28 says that Jesus called out with a loud voice. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The first time that he had experienced separation and exile away from the Father from God. So as Jesus took on our sin and as he took on our idolatry, he experienced that separation that was intended for us, that we deserved. And he also experienced that death 
as a result of that exile, as a result of what we had done. So here's the point. God is a promise keeper. He promised David that his son would rule forever, which Jesus couldn't do if he was dead, if he was in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. So God also raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is alive and he's reigning today. So I don't want us to believe the lie that this book, that this story is an ancient ancient story that doesn't matter to us today, that that doesn't matter to us, that doesn't have a place in our lives. It's a lie. It should matter to us today. God is a promise keeper. His promises are for us today. So the invitation is for us to trust him, to trust his word and not believe the lies that the enemy will throw our way because those that's idolatry. This leads us to death. So we're going to take communion together. We're going to remember the promises that God made to us in Jesus. So peel the top wrapper off and let's take the bread. And as we take this bread, let's remember Jesus, our King, who gave his body in our place. He gave his body to be broken to pay for our sin and to pay for our idolatry. So let's, let's take and remember. And as we take this juice, let's remember the new covenant that God made with his people, that God made with us, that the prophet Jeremiah foretold a long time ago in that passage we just read in Jeremiah 31. In Luke 22, Jesus picks that up and he says, this cup, this cup that represents my blood, this is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, so you can trust it. This is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Pour it out as a sacrifice for you. Take and drink, remember. Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll be done. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you uh, for your word. God, uh, we thank you that you didn't leave us to figure it out on our own, God, but... Um, but you sent your word, God, to instruct us, to lead us, to guide us towards you, towards your truth, towards the truth and the hope that we find in Jesus. God, we are grieved by the fact that there is sin and brokenness in your good creation. Uh, we are grieved and mourn the fact that we have participated in that, God, um, in idolatry, um, in turning away from you and tor- turning towards other gods. God, we thank you that in your grace, in your love, God, that you did not abandon your promises and you did not abandon your people and you have not abandoned us in that and that you pursue us so much so to the point that you would send your own son, Jesus, into this world to die the death that we deserved, God. And you've given us his righteousness uh, in place, God. You made a covenant with us, God. Um, and it's bound with with your, uh, the blood of Jesus, God, and so we know that we can trust it, God. Help us to trust in your words, God, because they are the source of life. You are the source of life. God, help us to understand and identify the enemy's lies for what they are, God, and help us to reject those, God. Help us to seek you. 
God, we pray that you'd go with us as we leave this place, God. We pray that you would use us as your, as your redeemed people, God, to be a part of what you're doing in Fort Worth, restoring your kingdom, bringing about your goodness and blessing um, to this world. Because of Jesus, God, we're able to do these things because of your spirit that you've sent um, to dwell in us, God. So we thank you for the great things that you've done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.